Before we dive into today's sermon, I want to remind us that today is the last day in our three-week stewardship campaign here at Life Journey. Uh, my apologies to those who are guests, but for those of us who are regulars, I want to uh, remind us uh, of that. As all of you know, we now have uh, 25 uh, billboards up all across the city of Indianapolis sharing a prophetic message. Jesus always stood with those who were targeted in his culture. In our culture today, probably the most targeted subgroup is transgender people. And so with Jesus, we want to stand with them against the fear, uh, against the hate. And so all across town, we have billboards that proclaim love trans people because Jesus does. <laughs> Matthew 22, 37 through 39. And what's been fascinating to me is watching all of the conversations that are taking place on social media as a result of these billboards. It's been for me a powerful reminder of how desperately the world needs churches like ours. This past week, uh, Becky White, our children's minister here, came across a thread in the social media uh, that she shared with us on staff. Uh, this is what was said on that thread. Someone named Ashley, uh, after seeing uh, some of our, our billboards, uh, told a friend, this gives me hope, but I hope it's not a bait and switch scenario. Her friend Heather replied, I know the people at this church, it's not bait and switch. Their website has a whole section on actions for advocacy too. After checking out our website, Ashley replied, okay, I'm a fan now, exclamation point. Then someone named Cheryl chimed in, Life Journey Church is the real deal, all caps. I have a good friend who knows them well. It's a breath of fresh air to say the least. Someone named Allison responded, how wonderful, exclamation point. Someone named Kathy chimed in, wonderful, exclamation point. This church is giving hope to so many people. And it's not just transgender people. It's all kinds of different people who have been disillusioned and estranged from from the narrow-minded, judgmental, uh, dogmatic attitude that is encountered in so many churches in our world today. The, there was someone who was brand new to our church uh, three weeks ago, and uh, afterward she told me a little bit about her story. She and her husband uh, live uh, 40 miles north of Indianapolis in, in a small town, and and she drove all the way down here. She said that for 21 years, they had been part of a fundamentalist Pentecostal church, deeply involved. She is a Christian author, published three different books. And, and she began to ask questions and ideas that just didn't fit in that narrow fundamentalist theology. And she began to feel estranged and alienated from her church. So she began attending a, a mainline Protestant congregation. 
And she told me, oh, the worship was just so boring there. Now, different strokes for different folks, right? But for her, it wasn't what she was accustomed to. She said, I half-jokingly wrote to a friend of mine and said, I need to find me a progressive Pentecostal church, believing that no such thing exists. Her friend wrote back and said, you should check out Life Journey Church. Now, we are not Pentecostal. I mean, some of us are. Most of us aren't, right? But when we worship, there's some energy in this place, right? And so she came to check us out. And you know what she, her phrase afterwards? Same phrase that was in that social media thread. She said, this is such a breath of fresh air. And now from afar, as best her schedule permits, she wants to be a part of this congregation on a regular basis. This world desperately needs churches like this. And if you believe that, if you believe that, if you believe in what God is doing through Life Journey Church, and you're not yet a regular giver, would you please consider becoming one at any level? And if you are already a regular giver, would you please consider whether this is a time when you could increase your generosity? If all of us do what we can together, we'll close that $1,200 a week budget gap. I mean, look at what God is accomplishing through us when we're not at full budget and imagine what we can do when we operate at full throttle. There's a response form on the very back of your Sunday headlines, or you can go to the links page, lifejourney.church links, and click on the stewardship response there. Uh, if you're filling out the manual form, there are pens at the usher's desk and a big blue and purple box there uh, where you can return your forms. Thank you for considering this. But enough said about that. Let's turn our attention now to today's scripture and today's sermon, starting with a prayer. Lord Jesus, let your light shine from this place so that people all across this city and beyond who need a reason to hope again can hope again and dare to believe again. And for those of us who are already here, May your word minister to us today as you continue shaping and molding us into beautiful examples of the new form of life that you, Jesus, call us to. For it's in your holy name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. So today we are wrapping up our sermon series called New Life in Christ. In this series, we've been wrestling with what did Jesus mean when he said, you must be born again? What exactly is this new form of life that Jesus is calling us to? And if we embrace that new form of life, how will it affect us in this life and the life to come? In past weeks, we focused on how does being born again, how does a spiritual awakening, if you will, affect us in this life. But now today, as we wrap up, we're going to focus on how does being born again affect us in the life to come, which means that today we're going to talk about heaven and dum, da, dum, 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 that other place, hell.
What should we believe about that? But we're going to start with heaven. And the good news first, we're going to start with heaven. But before we do, a word of caution. Whenever we finite human creatures with our tiny human brains who've only experienced space-time reality, whenever we are trying to understand infinite realities that exist outside space and time, we have to have a healthy appreciation for the significant limitations on our ability to understand. When we're trying to understand infinite concepts, we are mere children of God at play in the garden of God. A little boy, Tommy, six years old, was told by his parents that he was going to get a brand new baby sister. He was so excited at school. He was telling everybody, including his teacher, talking about this brand new baby sister that he was going to get. One day at home, his mom said, hey, Tommy, come over here. Put your hand here on my tummy. He did so. Mom says, do you feel that? Something moving. He said, yes. She said, that's your baby sister. His eyes got real big. He said nothing more. But at school, he stopped talking about his baby sister. So his teacher pulls him aside and says, Tommy, what about this baby sister of yours? His eyes teared up, and he said, I think Mommy ate her. <laughs> if you're a kid, and you said, where do babies come from? And somebody says, they grow in Mommy's tummy. You might understand that, and you might not. You might get it right. You might get it wrong. But when a kid says, where do babies come from? You don't give a full biological explanation. You don't talk about how the womb is separate from the stomach and the, the fallopian tubes and the fertilization process. You don't go into any of that. You respond at an age-appropriate level in ways that hopefully the child can understand. When God Almighty, infinitely other, existing outside of space and time, is talking to us about infinite concepts, beyond anything we have ever experienced. How does God communicate that to us? Like a parent would communicate to a child at an age-appropriate level using analogies from our own frame of reference that will help us get closer to the ultimate truth about what is real in life. So when we say, God, what is heaven is like? God has to figure out how to put that to us in a way that we can understand. How many people here have cats? Okay, quite a few. If your cat were to say to you, so I mean they could talk, what's heaven like? And if your cat could understand your language, how would you explain heaven to a cat in ways that a cat with their tiny little brains can understand? Maybe you would say, well, Imagine a place where there are mice everywhere. <laughs> because cat heaven would be mouse hell, right? But imagine a place where there are mice everywhere and, and where there's this brilliant light and you can bask in the light on a cushy pillow all you want. Heaven is like that and so much more. You're explaining it on a level the cat can understand. When God says to us, Picture it like this, streets of gold and gates of pearl. 
Do you think when we get to heaven there will actually be streets of gold and gates? Maybe. It sounds kind of garish to me. It sounds to me like maybe some gay man decorated heaven and got a little bit carried away. <laughs> gold streets, gates of pearl. Liberace would love it, right? Will there actually be streets of gold and gates of pearl? Maybe. Or maybe God is saying, imagine the most incredible place you can come up with in your frame of reference. Heaven will be like that and so much more. So we have to have a healthy humility when we're talking about things that are outside our frame of reference. The Bible itself tells us that. 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen. No ear has heard, no mind has imagined the things God has prepared for those who love him. That's the Bible telling us there's not a single human being who's ever lived who could really imagine what heaven will be like. The same basic point is made in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this slight momentary affliction, referring to life on earth, is preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Measure is space, time, dimension, boundaries. We're being prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what it cannot be seen by the human eye. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal, infinite. So with all of this as caution, that we need to have a lot of doctrinal humility when we're talking about otherworldly concepts. Let's now dive into today's passage and see what we are able to learn at an age-appropriate level about heaven. Revelation chapter 19, or excuse me, 21. That was the song we sang. Revelation 21, verse 1. John, having a vision of heaven, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. All of reality as we know it will be transformed completely. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is now among mortals. God will dwell with them. Here on earth we experience the presence of God mediated through the Holy Spirit, the unseen presence of God. But this promise is that in heaven, we will be in the direct presence of God. What will that be like? I can only imagine. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. What is the worst part of life on planet Earth? It's death. It's losing beloved loved ones and the mourning and the pain that we experience when that happens. Imagine what it will be like someday when we are reunited with those loved ones forever and ever. True story. In 1850, in Edinburgh, Scotland, a man named John Gray moves to town looking for a job as a gardener, his chosen profession. Not finding a job as a gardener, he ends up hiring on with a local police force as a night watchman working the graveyard shift. 
That's a lonely, boring, tedious job. So before long, John begins bringing with him on his nightly rounds his beloved terrier dog, Bobby. The two became inseparable. If you saw John, you knew Bobby would be there. If you saw Bobby, you knew John would be there. They formed this profound bond. Then John contracted tuberculosis and died. He was buried in Gravefriars Kirkyard, a cemetery in Edinburgh, Scotland. And after his burial, Bobby refused to leave his master's grave. Several times, the caretaker of the cemetery tried to evict the dog and place him in a good home. No matter what, Bobby would find his way back to that gravesite. People began bringing food for the dog there at the gravesite so he could survive. The caretaker gave up and built a shelter for Bobby so he could live there. For the next 14 years, that dog lived at his master's grave. True story, there's a, there's a statue to Bobby in Edinburgh to this day. 14 years, and then Bobby died. Can you imagine what that homecoming, that reunion in heaven was like? For 14 years, that dog woke up and thought, maybe today I'll see my master again. Maybe we'll be reunited. Maybe I know he wouldn't leave me here. I know he'll come for me. 14 years. And then finally, in heaven, death and mourning are gone. And Bobby sees his beloved master. Oh, what a homecoming. Imagine what heaven will be like. Who is it? Who is it in your life that you are longing to see again? The day is coming. That's the promise of heaven. The day is coming. Verse 22 in chapter 21 adds some additional texture. I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, a reference to Jesus. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God's light, or for, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and there will be no night there. People who have near-death experiences often report experiencing the presence of a light that is iridescent and cannot be described in human language, that envelops them in an infinite love, so profound, so much peace, that even if they had a good life and have a loving family that they left back on earth, they say, I never wanted to be sent back. I never wanted to leave the presence of that light. We will encounter that light that presence in heaven. What will it be like? We can only imagine. But even as we think about heaven and what it will be, it raises a critical question. 
Who gets into heaven? The short answer is genuine believers. In the first installment in our sermon series, we saw that as we studied John chapter 3. And there in John chapter 3, we're told, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, so that whosoever believes in Him, Jesus, will not perish, but have eternal life. So the Scriptures tell us that the keys to heaven are belief. But, but what kind of belief? In John chapter 3, Jesus explains that to us. Jesus says, we're talking about a spiritual awakening that, is, that runs so deep that it is as if you are being reborn, born again, experiencing a second birth. When we open our heart to Jesus genuinely and say, Jesus, come into my life, I want your values to be my values. I want your teachings to be the path for my life. We begin to experience a transformation that's like, it's like we're stepping into a whole new way of life, like we've been born again. That's the kind of belief that John chapter 3 is calling us to, a transformation. Not that we're going to be perfect, but that that now we become these people who strive to, who aspire to the values and teachings of Jesus and, and who want to grow to become more and more like him. So John 3 is not talking about casual belief. There are a lot of casual Christians uh, in this world. A lot of people who give mental assent to the doctrines of the Christian faith and go to church sometimes, you know, just to be on God's good side, but, but it hasn't really affected the heart in any sort of deep place. The Bible actually warns us about that. One of the most intriguing verses in the Bible, 1 John 2.18 says, You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, but, John says, even now many Antichrists, plural, have come into the world. We're used to hearing about the Antichrist, but even in the first century, John said, there are already many Antichrists who've come into the world. What does that mean? What is an Antichrist? Think about the term. It's someone who claims Jesus, who claims to be a follower of Jesus, but is living in a way that is contrary to the values and teachings of Jesus. Antichrist. There are a lot of people in the world who say, I'm a Jesus person, but live like hell. Who claim Jesus, but have a heart that seems the opposite of the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels. Jesus himself, in his day, directly warned the most religious people in his culture in these words, Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross the sea and the land to make a single convert, and you end up making that new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Whoa, Jesus. It is possible to find religion and end up becoming an even worse person. It's possible to find the Christian religion but not find Jesus. Because 
Knowing Jesus is not about memorizing and giving mental assent to a whole bunch of biographical and doctrinal facts about Jesus. No, knowing Jesus is about embracing Jesus in our hearts. It's not about the head. It's about the heart. There are a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus but have never known Jesus. And there are a lot of people who know little or nothing about Jesus. May not know many or any of the biographical and doctrinal facts about Jesus. Who nevertheless intuitively have met Jesus in their heart. The Bible says that's possible by the way. Romans 1. A few weeks ago I shared with you a story from the play The Christian about a, a young man who who's there's a grocery store on fire and his, his little sister's inside. And that teenager rushes in to that blazing fire to save the life of his sister, carries her out to safety. But his clothes have now caught on fire and there's nobody to help him. And he ends up burning to death, giving his life to save his sister. And in the play, some of the people in the play say, oh, what a shame that this fine young man is now in hell because he didn't know the details about Jesus. Whereas the pastor in the play questions that. His point being, Jesus gave his life to save us. Here's a young man who gave his life to save his sister. That sounds like following Jesus. That sounds like embracing in your heart the values and the teachings of Jesus. This is why Jesus said, judgment day comes, the first will be last and the last will be first. People that we think are going to be right at the front of the line to get in, are going to be at the back of the line. People that we think are going to be at the back of the line, wow, look at them. They're at the front of the line. God looks on the heart. So it's not about how it's not about going through catechism class, learning a bunch of facts about Jesus, saying, okay, I believe in Jesus. I'll go to church occasionally. That's casual belief. Transformational belief is when our heart connects to his heart. Salvation is not a doctrinal test. It's a heart test. Okay, Jeff, you may say. But there's one more key question here. What happens to the unbelievers. Why wouldn't a God of mercy welcome even unbelievers into heaven? Okay, let's think about that. Those Russian soldiers who overran Bukha in Ukraine and then proceeded to wantonly rape women and young girls. Those soldiers in Bukha who made old men kneel on their knees while they pleaded for their life and then pointed their pistol at their temple and shot them at point-blank range. Suppose a God of mercy were to say to those soldiers, if they die in their unrepentant state, I'm a God of mercy, come on in. If God were to do that, heaven would no longer be heaven. It'd just be a Groundhog Day repeat of what we experience here on earth. This 
mysterious mixture of good and evil that we confront here on earth that keeps earth from being heaven. If there's greed and anger and violence and prejudice and racism and, and tribalism in heaven, then heaven just becomes earth 2.0. So, what's a God to do? God creates an alternative destination for those who don't want to embrace the values of the kingdom of heaven. That's the place we call hell. And let me tell you, there are a lot of churches in this world who love to use the doctrine of hell as a cudgel to try to scare people into faith. But guess what? Scaring people doesn't produce genuine change. Forced compliance, maybe, but not genuine change. A brand new priest, fresh out of seminary, Father John, was assigned to his first local parish. He brought in all kinds of creative and innovative ideas. Three months later, the senior supervising regional priest comes through to take a look and make sure things are going okay. After looking around and assessing things, the senior priest says, Father John, the ideas you're bringing to this church are wonderful. I especially I especially like the idea of that drive-through confessional. Brilliant, perfectly suited to the needs of modern people who are on the go. And I like the fact, the senior priest says, that it's, it's open 24-7 so that it's convenient even for people who work the graveyard shift. But Father John, the senior priest says, that sign you've put up outside that says, toot and tell or go to hell, that's got to go. A lot of churches in the world who feast on the doctrine of hell almost like they're glad about it. Jeff, all kidding aside, seriously, hell is a scary subject. How could a God of love create a place where people are thrown into fire and left there to be tormented forever? That is one of the most important theological questions many people have and the barrier that keeps many people from believing in God. How could a loving God do that? I believe the answer to that question is God didn't and God doesn't. Now, let me explain what I mean. And let me also warn you that what I'm about to share with you would be regarded in traditional churches as heresy. It would get, in the Middle Ages, it would have gotten me burned at the stake, a faggot thrown in the fire, literally. But what I'm about to share with you is thoroughly biblical, I believe. I'll share it with you. You can judge it for yourself. And by the way, this is a church where we don't all have to think alike. You can hear what I'm about to say and say he's full of it, and you will still be a respected part of this church. But let me share some thoughts with you. And some of you have heard me say this before, but let's share it with those who haven't so everybody can think about this. Here's how I understand the biblical doctrine of hell. God created us human beings with free will, allowing us the right and privilege to choose 
whether we want to embrace the values of the kingdom of God or not. And if God is going to give us that kind of choice, then it's also incumbent on God, out of respect for that free will, to create an alternative place for those who say, no thanks God, I want to do this my way. So God creates a place. We call that place hell. The principal New Testament Greek word that is translated as hell is Gehenna. Gehenna, that term in ancient Greek, scholars tell us, was linguistically derived from an actual, the name of an actual location on the face of the earth called the Valley of Hinnom, which coincidentally is near to Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom is a beautiful mountain valley. This is what the Valley of Hinnom looks like today. It may strike you as odd that this beautiful place gave its name to the New Testament doctrine of Gehenna, hell. Why on earth would this place give its name to what we call hell? Well, let me tell you a brief history of the Valley of Hinnom and you'll understand. God created the Valley of Hinnom, a beautiful place. But in Old Testament times, many people who practice what we today would call occult religions selected the Valley of Hinnom as a center for their worship, a form of worship that included child sacrifice. Parents who would come to this place and to appease the gods would throw a child in the fire so that this beautiful place was turned into a horrific place. And even after those practices ceased, who would want to live in the Valley of Hinnom with all of those haunting memories? So it became, I guess you would say, a God-forsaken place where people didn't want to be. So that by the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom had been turned into Jerusalem's garbage dump. People from Jerusalem would literally bring their garbage out to the Valley of Hinnom, dump it, burn it. So the Valley of Hinnom was a place of perpetual fire, a place full of insects feasting on all of this garbage. Hence, the New Testament phrase about hell as being a, a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. The Valley of Hinnom became, was turned into, by human beings, a garbage dump. Okay, so God says, how do I explain the concept of hell to finite human creatures? God says, okay, I'm going to pick one of the worst places humans have ever encountered and say, think about it like that. That's what hell's like. And when we think about that at our age-appropriate level as humans, what does that tell us about the doctrine of hell? It tells me that God created Gehenna to be that beautiful alternative place for those who don't choose the values of the kingdom of God. But when you put a bunch of people who reject the values of God in a place like that, it's not going to take long before they trash the place, before the place becomes hell on earth, if you will. Not because there's literal fire there, not because there are literally worms crawling around there, but because, metaphorically speaking, the souls of those who are there are on fire. What is a place that is utterly devoid of God and full of evil like? 
Imagine how awful that would feel in your heart. So it's not, in my understanding of the doctrine of hell, it's not that God actively torments people in hell. It's that the torture is self-inflicted by the values that are exhibited by those who are in that place. Yeah, Jeff, but okay, even if I grant all of that, why would God leave someone, a God of mercy, a God of love, leave someone there forever and ever and ever? Again, my answer is I don't believe God does. You're probably thinking, you better have scripture to back that up. I do. Two key scriptures that are often neglected that I think are critical to a balanced understanding of the biblical doctrine of hell. If we get the doctrine of hell wrong, we're also going to have a distorted doctrine of the character of God. Teaching people that God is schizophrenic. Merciful while you're alive. The opposite of that, when you die. Look at what 1 Peter 3.19 tells us. Verse 18 tells us that Jesus was crucified. And then verse 19 tells us, Then he went, Jesus went, and made proclamation to who? The spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently. It's this verse that gives rise to the, the, the line in the Apostles' Creed that, say that says that Christ descended into hell, the traditional Christian notion that after Jesus was crucified, he descended into hell. Why would Jesus descend into hell? We get further explanation in 1 Peter 4, 6. For this reason, the gospel was proclaimed by Jesus, even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh, as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. So you get the picture? These are people who lived and rejected God, died, were judged, were sent to hell. And after his crucifixion, Jesus descends into hell and preaches the gospel to them and says, it's not too late. Are you ready? Come with me. Let me take you home. Ephesians 2 tells us Jesus led many captives out of captivity. Wow. So this is the Bible saying that Jesus gave dead people in hell a second chance. And I say, if Jesus did it once, what's to keep him from doing it again? And again. And again. And again. However long it takes. Jeff, doesn't the Bible say the lake of fire is everlasting, this place called hell? Yes, it does. It probably is. It doesn't, doesn't the Bible say that people are sentenced there for eternity? Yes, it does. But as any lawyer can tell you, the judge who imposes a sentence can commute a sentence. Don't tell me that right up until the point we die, God is grace and mercy. And you can mess up a billion times in your life, and it's never too late to repent the thief on the cross. But once you die, boom, no more grace, no more mercy. God's different after you die. That's not biblical. The Bible says, Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good and his mercy endures until you die. <laughs> right? Wrong. His mercy endures how long? Forever. That's after death as well as before death. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The character of God is consistent. 
And that consistency of the character of God in 1 Peter 3 and 4 is that, the say, that Jesus was the say, is the same now as he was before his death. He's the same now in your life as he will be after your death. The same Jesus who said, if one sheep is lost, I, the shepherd, will go and search until I find it. That same Jesus is willing to even descend into hell to find those lost sheep. Again and again and again until eventually every knee will bow and every tongue proclaim Jesus is Lord as Ephesians tells us. Jeff, you shouldn't tell people this because it lets them off the hook. They'll think, well, I can live like I want to here and I'll deal with God in the afterlife. Nobody in their right mind would want to spend even a minute in Gehenna, let alone a year, 10 years, a thousand years. Where are you in your decision-making process? The decisions we make in this life have serious consequences. Have you been born again? Have you awakened your soul to Jesus and said, Jesus, come into my heart? Let me close with this. Dr. Mary Neal, a medical doctor, was on a trip to Chile in South America with her husband, a kayaking trip, kayaking on a beautiful Chilean river. They were experienced kayakers. They were with experienced kayakers. But at one point on the river, one of the kayakers inadvertently cut Mary off and she had to swerve her kayak to avoid colliding with them. And in the process, got caught up in a powerful current that swept her over a 15-foot waterfall. She tells this story of her experience in a TED Talk. Going over the waterfall, her kayak hits the water below, nose first with her in it, plunges eight feet underwater, and becomes wedged tight in rocks at the bottom of the river, she is now trapped in her kayak, struggling to get out eight feet underwater, unable to do so. She says, in that moment, I realized I'm drowning. This is it. She says, in my life, I was a nominal Christian. But here, she says, I calmly prayed a prayer and said thy will be done not get me out of here this was surrender thy will be if I live or die it's in your hands it's up to you God thy will be done this was Mary Neal's spiritual awakening she says as soon as I prayed that prayer I felt a presence a palpable presence cradling me in arms of love. And this incredible peace came over me. She says, I intuitively knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was Jesus there with me. And then she says, there was this shift in reality as I felt my soul, my spirit, leaving my body, moving up through the water, up 
above the water, soaring into the sky. She felt, uh, she says, I experienced this incredible lightness of being, and I was able to look back down on the scene and see people frantically trying to find me, to save me, to rescue me. And as I was carried away, she says, I ended up encountering these people, she says. Maybe they were people, maybe they were beings, she says. I didn't know who they were, but I instinctively knew kind of who they were. All of my loved ones were still alive, but these were great-great-grandmas and, and people who were somewhere in my distant past who had a special interest in me and my life. And there was this incredible reunion and, 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 and union of our souls there. And then Jesus talked me through my life, not judgmentally, but reflectively. And then Jesus told me I had to go back, that there was more for me to do. And he walked her through some of those things, including that her beloved son was going to die at an early age and she would need to be there for the family. She didn't want to leave that presence, but she was sent back. Mary Neal was underwater for 30 minutes. So this wasn't just near death. This was clinical. They brought her up out of the water, her body bloated and purple, brain dead. Somehow she revived and went through years or, or months of rehab. She says, when I was back as a scientist, I read everything I could on near-death experiences and neurons misfiring and what happens to the brain when you're deprived of oxygen, trying to convince myself that what I experienced was not real because she did not want to believe that her son would die young, among other things. I tried everything I could to disprove it in my mind, but the more I read, the more I was convinced this can't explain what happened to me. What would explain how I could know in advance about my son's death? Because you see, 10 years after she came back in his early 20s, her son died in a car accident. But she was there to help her family through it. It was one of the things she was here to do. And then she goes on to talk about how eternity gives our, focuses our life on the purposes for which we're here in this life, being prepared to be like Jesus. At the very end of her TED talk, she looks at her audience and she says, are you awake? Are you awake? Are you, my words now, not hers, are you spiritually woke? Have you ever consciously chosen to invite Jesus into your life? Maybe the spirit is stirring in your heart. Maybe you're saying, the dots are starting to connect. I'm starting to get it. I'm ready to do that. If that's where you are on your journey, I want to offer you three options for action. Option one, Pastor Robert and Deacon Craig will be at the front of the sanctuary at the end of this service if you'd like to pray with someone you can. Option two, if it feels better to you, you can go to lifejourney.church links and click on the response form there, the generic response form, and scroll down to where it says, I'm making a decision to follow Jesus, or where it says, I, need, I have spiritual questions I need to talk to a pastor, and we'll be in touch with you. Option three, Register for Discipleship 101-102 and take a deep dive into what it means to follow Jesus and assess where you are in this process. If the Spirit is stirring, don't live the rest of your life dormant, half alive. Awaken 
to the fullness of life now and in the life to come. Jesus is calling. We must be born again.